This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. If you're looking for a better way to manage your debt, there's five debt management resources that BC consumers can access for free. And Blair has said this a number of times, knowing is not owing. Uh, each year, thousands of people across the province get professional debt help solutions from licensed insolvency trustees, which, of course, that's what Blair is. And there's, what, about a thousand in the country. Is that still correct, Blair? That's about right, yep. So the thing is, you guys talk to people every day about all the different options to help them manage their debts. And you've talked before that there are solutions that people can take on their own to better manage their debts. Let's talk about those. And what's the first free resource that you think we should know about? I'm really excited for today's segment, Elaine, because I love the idea of a free resource. And uh, what I want to do today is to explain, you know, these are all pretty simple stuff. They're not going to cost you anything. And again, as we've talked a number of times, I believe there's, you know, there's some objectives in the financial um, financial system to make things seem more complicated than they are, and they're really not. It's relatively straightforward. And the five things I'm going to talk to you about today, they're all very straightforward. And I think people will say, oh, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. I wonder why no one else told me about them before. So I hope people do get some value out of what we're going to say today. So the number one thing here is to check your credit history or your credit report. This is something you can do absolutely free, um, but it's not going to be you know, the easiest way to find this. If you go, there's two credit bureaus in Canada. There's Equifax and there's TransUnion. If you go on their website, you know, you'll see all these offers for getting, you know, credit score monitoring on a monthly basis, you know, pay $24.95 to get your credit report instantly online. Um, but it's always been the case, you can get your long form credit report, you know, the one that runs for 10 plus pages, depending on how many accounts you have open, you can get that for free once a year, just by asking for it just by sending in a specified request form and they will mail you a long form copy of your credit report. So to access that form, if you go to my website, which is sans-trustee.com and down at the bottom of the homepage, you'll see a button for client resources. We've got a link to each of the forms for Equifax and TransUnion. And if you just send it away, you send a couple copies of your ID, you tell them your address. Within about a week or two, you'll get your long form credit report and it's Almost every time when I pulled my credit report, I found at least one or two accounts that maybe weren't re reporting accurately. I found addresses that I didn't live at. I found employers I haven't had before. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, 30 plus million Canadians, a lot of data points on each Canadian, it's possible for things to get filed under the wrong person. And if it's something that's delinquent, you know, showing that you've missed payments when you could, when you haven't, um, you know, you might only find out about that when you're trying to apply for a mortgage or apply for a car loan. And when you tell the person, well, that has nothing to do with me, I'll say, well, you better, better go get that corrected. But nothing is instant with credit bureaus. It can take weeks or months to get something corrected. And that might put the deal that you're trying to get done for a house or a car in jeopardy. So it's really important people access their credit report. I generally recommend about once a year. Uh, what's happened recently as well is both Equifax Facts and TransUnion during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, they're actually giving free online access. So it's even easier than ever before. Again, you have to navigate a bit on the web 
website keep clicking away from where they're trying to charge you money. But uh, TransUnion is calling it a consumer disclosure report. I'm not sure the terminology Equifax is using, but they both said publicly they're now giving free online access to credit reports. So I encourage all lenders, uh, sorry, all individuals to go and check uh, your credit reports um, as quickly as you can and just to see if there are any inaccuracies there to correct. Okay. And so you advise people minimum once a year to do that? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, great. So the next step, um, and this is going to take some explaining for sure, is the statute of limitations. And is this something that anyone or everyone should pay attention to? Or is it just if you've been in debt for a long time? Or what's the best way to approach it? Well, I think we'll start off by defining it first and saying who should pay attention to it. Um, so what happens is in a statute of limitations, you know, for many, many things in life, uh, if something happens to you and you decide, you know, I'm not going to make a big deal about it for now, but, you know, maybe in the future I'm going to say going to make, make a big stink about it, um, there could be a period of time where you run out of time, you know, to essentially to make a claim against somebody because they've wronged you. What this right. means when it comes to debt is, uh, say I've borrowed money from you, Elaine, and I don't pay you. You know, we, we said I was going to pay you every month and I stopped paying you. You can't come back 10 years later and say, hey, Blair, you know, you were supposed to make payments. 10 years have gone by and you haven't made payments. I want all the money now. Uh -huh. What the law says is you've got two years from the date when I was supposed to make a payment to when you have to bring a court action against me for payments. And if two years go by and you haven't brought that court action, you lose the right to ever bring that court action. So where it can make sense is if someone is, you know, maybe 70, 80 years old, they're not too concerned about their credit rating and they owe money to a bank that they're just not going to be able to pay off, you know, given that their pension income and nothing is going to be additional to that. You know, they could decide to file a bankruptcy or file a proposal or they could just decide to say, well, I'm not able to pay this bank. You know, if the bank really wants to take me to court at that point, I might hire a trustee and do a bankruptcy or a proposal, but I might just wait this out for two years. And if the bank decides not to sue me, then I'm going to know for the rest of my life, the bank can never sue me on this debt. I just can stop worrying about it. So what did it cost me to, you know, basically get out from under that debt? Nothing other than waiting two years from the date of the last payment. So there's a lot of intricacies to this. You know, if it's a government debt, there is no statute of limitations. If you've already been sued for the debt, there is no statute of limitations. Uh, but in many, many cases, if you've just got one consumer debt, maybe it's been hanging around for a long time, it's well beyond two years since you last made a payment, you can sleep soundly knowing that you could never be compelled or forced to pay that debt if a court action was brought against you. Uh, in, in this situation, it sounds like you're the person who uh, who I'd want to talk to first before thinking about taking this kind of action or not taking this kind of action. Absolutely. I would say reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee because, you know, this is not the low risk way to go. It's not the low stress way to go in many cases, but it can be the right way to go if you just really can't afford to make payments. And it can be great peace of mind to know it's not going to be the rest of your life. You have to be worried. It's literally two years from the date of your last payment. Yeah. Sounds like a good idea. What about those uh, collection calls that we often hear about and, and get, even if we don't owe anybody anything? I mean, my mm -hmm. gosh, the number of phone calls I get on a regular basis, whether it be at my home line or my cell phone, it's crazy, uh, you know, people telling me I owe the money. But I mean, let's say I did. And what about those collection calls? Is there anything we can do about that? 
Well, absolutely. You know, creditors have the right to call you. You have the right to hang up the phone. So there's no point would you ever be compelled to have to speak to anybody about your debt. But that's obviously not a very comfortable thing to be doing to hang be hanging up in people's faces. Um, you know, for anybody who hasn't had the pleasure of having a collection call, um, you know, I had a debt a few years ago uh, with a rental car company. Um, the insurance company was paying them out within a few months, uh, but they also assigned it to a collection agent. And I could not explain to this collection agent. I couldn't get two words out before they were down my throat telling me I was a very bad person and I was a right. legal professional so you know I knew not to be intimidated by this and I knew you know everything's going to get resolved so you can imagine somebody who doesn't have the same background as a licensed insolvency trustee when they hear somebody speaking in a very formal tone who's talking down to them who requires that you address them as Mr. So-and-so with they'll use your first name and throw it out no matter what um, it can be a very unpleasant situation to find yourself in the For province sure. of BC has some of the best consumer protection legislation in Canada and they've put out a letter called a request for communication in writing only and that is exactly as it sounds when you send that to a creditor it is a legally binding requirement that they no longer call you that they send you letters instead and you can imagine the threats the tone the innuendos what they might try to say over the phone if they have to write that down they know that could end up on the front page of the Vancouver Sun the next day <laughs> something that's really you know over, beyond the pale so they're gonna be Absolutely. very careful about that yeah. So all, all you need to do is send that letter. Uh, it's a letter you can find from Consumer Protection BC, or as with many useful things, you'll find it on the SANS-Trustee website. Again, go to the homepage, click on Client Resources, and you'll find that letter. You just fill it in who is the collector. Now, it's important that you keep a record of when you've sent this and to who, because you can imagine they're going to say, we didn't get this letter. And then you say, well, I mailed it to you on this date. I've got a return mail. Uh, you know, I did registered mail, so I've got a receipt for it. Um, and then after you've documented a few times, you'll find the calls are going to stop completely, or you'll complain to Consumer Protection BC, and they'll get involved with fines or even re removing collector's licenses. So it's a real thing with some teeth. Okay, excellent. Now, uh, what's the fourth resort, uh, resource that you want to tell someone about? Yeah, this one I've headlined as consolidate without borrowing. So most of the time, if people are in debt, they try to consolidate, they approach their bank and they say, you know, if I'm paying 19% on all my debts, I'd rather, you know, pay a whole lot less than that through a consolidation loan, maybe pay 10 or 11 or 12%, which sounds great. But a lot of the time people have difficulty qualifying for a consolidation loan, because you have to have either really great income or a lot of assets you can pledge to the bank. And most of the time, if you have those things, you might not need to consolidate or you might not be in debt. The way a consumer proposal works is it costs you nothing beyond what you can afford to repay as a consolidated amount. So it puts all of your debt together and it does one better than a consolidation loan and then it reduces the debts down to what you can afford and it saves you all the interest as well. So where it's free is that whatever you can afford to pay back on the debts, if you owe 30000 you can afford to pay back 10000 That's all that you pay back and the trustee gets paid out of that amount that you can afford to offer. So there's no cost above and beyond the amount you can afford to pay to settle your debts. Okay. Um, there's uh, the thing that I want I wanted to ask too about this is that we we talk a lot about licensed insolvency trustees and and how they work. How do you get paid for your service? Because it is a business, even though you're federally regulated, you've got to pay the bills. So how do you get yep. paid for me when I come to you? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Elaine. When I you know, tell people, say, at a cocktail party, I'm a trustee, and people say, well, how do you get paid if people have no money? Well, at the end of the day, if you're going to do a bankruptcy, for example, if you're low income, you pay $200 a month for nine months, the majority of that goes to the trustee to cover the cost of administration. If you're paying more than $1,800, the majority of it goes to your creditors, and the trustee gets a portion of it for cost of administration. Uh, okay. If you're doing a consumer proposal, if you're paying back $300 a month, for example, the trustee will get a portion of that, I think about 50 or 60 dollars and that on that basis um, on a monthly basis uh, basically as their fee so the trustee gets a portion of what you're paying back either in a bankruptcy or a proposal but it's never a separate bill it's never something um, that's you know can be scaled up or down based on time it's all set by a government tariff excellent okay and in the last minute or so i really want you to talk about getting that free debt advice from a licensed insolvency trustee and how that works and why why it can work so well for folks yep so if you take nothing else away from this segment, just realize there are professionals out there that are committed to helping you understand all of your options, and they do this for free. So at Sands & Associates, we have 19 offices. We help people all across the province, and it's no cost, no obligation. We'll sit down with you. We'll be over the phone or on Zoom or whatever, explain to you all of your options, explain to you what you can do. And if that solution doesn't include us, that's totally fine. You'll never get a bill for our services. We just want to help you move forward. It's such a great, such a great service too. Um, uh, you're there if if I need you to to take some action and to start a process, or just for good information. And if you're not quite at that place yet where you want to make a call and sit down to somebody, uh, talk to somebody, which I totally suggest you do because they're just really good people. Everybody that we've had on the show has been so easy to talk to and and such good communicators. Check out their website at sands-trustee.com. Just so much good information on there, good questions, very thorough answers, covering all kinds of topics to do with debt and how to give you a, to give you a hand up. Uh, the 1-800 number, if you'd like it, is 1-800-661-3030 to get the free consultation or to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment, it's a great one because I know we've heard from Blair so many times about credit card debt seems to be sort of the first thing that pushes people to really realize that they're in trouble because they can't get ahead of it. So we're going to talk about credit cards before, during, and after the bank, after a bankruptcy. Uh, Blair is going to walk us through all things related to credit card debt. Uh, Blair, and I know you guys, you and your team help people from all different backgrounds deal with all kinds of different kinds of debt, uh, and so that they can get a financial fresh, fresh start. Can we talk about some common warning signs that debts from credit cards in particular I'd like to focus on where it, you know you're heading for trouble? Yeah, certainly, Elaine. And, you know, the reason for the focus on credit cards is as we survey our, our clients every year, you know, when we say to them, what's the main debt, the main reason that you're here, the main thing that caused you the problem, over 55% of our respondents said it was credit card debt that got me here. So it is the most dominant debt that we see. Um, just about everybody that we're doing a filing for, even if income taxes is their main issue, there's always some credit card debt attached there as well. So it's something that a lot of people are facing and it's, it's very, very easy to get into credit card debt to get one that becomes another that becomes another. And before you know it, um, you know, you've got a debt that, that started to snowball on its own. So a number of warning signs that could tell somebody where they're getting into a bit of trouble with their credit card debt uh, is, are you avoiding your credit card balances? 
you got multiple credit cards, you know you owe some money, but you're just not going to open the bill this month or maybe next month, and now that stack is starting to get, you know, a half inch or an inch thick. So if you start avoiding your balances, that's a really big warning sign that you've probably got some challenges coming. Uh, a second warning sign is if you're using your credit cards to borrow rather than as a substitute for paying for money that you already have. So if it's the case you can make a purchase either in cash or a credit card and you've got the cash to pay that off right away, you're not going to get into trouble with that. You know, maybe you're just using the card to get some points or whatnot. But where you can get into trouble is if you're using your credit card for a purchase where you have no plan to pay it off um, or if it's the case that, you know, every month on a monthly basis you're using a credit card to subsidize living. You know, your groceries go on the credit card or part of your rent goes on there because of a cash advance. Um, those aren't what a credit card is, is, is aimed at and really the interest costs make it very uneconomic very quickly to use it for regular expenses. You know, another really large warning sign as well is are you shuffling payments from one credit card to another? So taking money off of one to make a minimum on another just so that one will get unlocked for the next month, so on and so forth. So, you know, you can call that moving money around or financial Tetris or things or robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's something a lot of people end up doing, but it always has a very sad ending because eventually there'll be no more credit room to borrow. You know, maybe you'll start into the payday loans, a really high cost financing at that point, uh, but it always ends at the point where there's just no one willing to extend you any further credit that you can move around to keep the, you know, all the balls in the air. So Blair, can you talk about what happens to credit cards when you're in a personal bankruptcy and in that process? Um, what about, and secondly, what about settling credit card debt without bankruptcy? Yeah, so so both excellent topics we, we can cover here. So when you start a bankruptcy filing, you know, most people anticipate this, you turn your credit cards over to the trustee. So even if there's a card that has a zero balance, if you're filing a bankruptcy, you have to turn over the credit cards to the trustee and they get destroyed or returned to the issuer. Uh, the exception to that is if you had a third party card, you know, if a spouse had a card, you're just a co-applicant on it or an employer has a card and you know you use it for business expenses, you know, those cards you'd be able to keep and if even if you were in a bankruptcy. Uh, what happens once you sign the legal bankruptcy documents is your trustee sends a notice out to all of your creditors. He or she contacts your creditors and lets them know that there's now a stay of proceedings in effect. And what that means is essentially everybody has to back off. They can't demand any payments. They can't call you, harass you, threaten any court actions, proceed with any court actions. Essentially, everything stops once a trustee is appointed. And then what happens once you're in a bankruptcy is regardless of whether it was credit card debt, income taxes, or whatever that got you here, you focus on completing the bankruptcy duties. So at a very summary, high-level high level basis every month you're in bankruptcy you'll complete a budget you'll show the trustee what are your in what is your income and what are your expenses you'll attend two private financial counseling sessions where we'll talk to you about household budgeting about setting financial goals and about rebuilding your credit in the future and then you'll pay a monthly cost of normally about two hundred dollars a month uh, for what is typically a nine-month term of a bankruptcy um, so regardless of the amount of the credit card debt it's really driven by your income and if you're low income uh, in the bankruptcy so you turn in the cards, you'd start to deal with the trustee, and as soon as nine months later, you could be discharged from the debt and moving forward to start to rebuild your credit. Okay, got it. Oh, and then um, you asked me one other question, Elaine, which is how yeah. can you avoid the bankruptcy and what are your options, which is very yeah. exciting as well. So for someone, you know, obviously bankruptcy is your last resort. Um, a consumer proposal is your means of avoiding a bankruptcy, but still making a significant reduction on your debts. So credit card companies in Canada are very amenable to accepting consumer proposals. Over 95% of the time when Sands & Associates files a consumer proposal, it is accepted. And the reason for that is when we do a consumer proposal, we show to 
to the credit card companies, here's what would happen if the person filed for bankruptcy, and usually there's not very much getting paid back. And you know, here's the option in the proposal. The person wants to offer back 25 or 30% of the debt. What do you think of that deal? Do you want to accept it? 95 times out of 100, they say, yes, we'll accept that, and then the person avoids bankruptcy. Okay. So um, can we move on then to the question, what happens when you're ready to get a new credit card? Yeah, I think that's so important because a lot of people have a misconception if they go into a bankruptcy, well, there's credit for the rest of your life. It's gone. You'll never get another credit card. And that's a complete myth. I know, I know nobody where that's been their situation. Okay. So it's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So what happens? Well, you go through the bankruptcy, you know, obviously um, your credit rating is going to take a pretty significant hit when you file the bankruptcy. Um, but then once you're finished the bankruptcy, you start a rebuilding process and we tell you exactly what to do. And, you know, there's no rocket science or mystery about it. It just starts with putting some really positive stories on your credit report that over time are going to outweigh the negative stories. So generally what you start with is you get a secured credit card first. So a secured credit card is where you put down a deposit and you get a card with a lower limit. So maybe you put down $500, a card with a 450 limit, or $1,000, get a card with a $900 limit, something like that. But the theory behind it is the credit card company has no risk. You know, if you charge $900 on the card and you don't pay it, well, then the next month they take your deposit, they've incurred no risk. But that doesn't happen very often because a secured credit card is the means for you to demonstrate on your credit report that you're incurring obligations and you're discharging or paying those obligations on a monthly basis. So the best secured credit cards, they'll report every month to the credit bureau saying, yep, Joe incurred $500 of expenses. He paid them off. You know, R1, which R1 is perfect credit. R9 is if you filed a bankruptcy or a consumer, or if you filed a bankruptcy. And R7 is if you filed a consumer proposal. So for every month when you're using these new secured credit cards, you're starting to get, you know, more R1s on your credit report, which again is a positive story. So typically after two to three years after you've been discharged from a bankruptcy, um, you would start to get offers of credit without the security attached to it and sometimes even sooner than that. So it's not the case that you're going to be untouchable for a long period of time. Uh, it is the case if you take the right steps, you know, even just a couple years after bankruptcy, you might be able to qualify for a mortgage, you know, even beyond a credit card or, or different loans or things like like that, it's far from a life sentence. What really matters um, is the steps that you take after the bankruptcy is finished. I know so many people are concerned about credit history, uh, and how does how's that impacted after you file personal bankruptcy? Yeah, so when you finish the personal bankruptcy, a personal bankruptcy is going to be noted on your credit report for six years after your discharge. So the worst thing you could do would be just to forget about credit for six years and come back after it's all gone. Uh, essentially, you'd be starting from scratch at that point. You'd be like a, someone who comes to Canada for the first time as an immigrant. They don't have any credit because there's no history. So it's really important that you don't take that six years as the time where you need to be outside of the financial system. What you want to do during that six years is, as we mentioned, get the secured credit card, maybe do an RRSP loan around tax time, you know, really show that you're paying your obligations on a regular basis. What's really important as well is to actually get a copy of your credit report after you finish the bankruptcy to make sure all of the debts are reporting correctly. Sometimes creditors, you know, through inadvertence or incompetence, they'll continue to report a debt as being delinquent, even though it's been dealt with in a bankruptcy. And you might not know if you don't pull your credit report periodically after the proceeding is closed, just to make sure everything has been updated correctly. Check out Sands & Associates, their website. It's sands-trustee.com. It's just filled with great questions and answers to a lot of questions that you may have.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I just found this so interesting as I was going through it before sitting down with you, uh, talking about this BC Consumer Debt Study that um, that Sands and Associates did. Is the, am, mm-hmm. am I right? That's right. Okay, so yeah. it's important that you know that you guys created, uh, talked to the people, got the data, and then put it all together. Yeah, it's our seventh year, Elaine. I'm so thrilled to be doing this. I can't believe seven years now we've been doing it, where uh, we figured as the largest firm in BC who helps people with bankruptcies or proposals, we had this great opportunity to really take the pulse of people who are having trouble with debt in BC, um, ask them a number of questions, try to get their advice to help others in other situations, uh, and just try to get more of a discussion happening about people suffering in debt and what are their options for moving forward. Um, So this year, it's the seventh time we've done it. Um, I was so pleased that we had, I believe, North of 1,300 responses to our survey. And if we look at the number of people in a year who file for a bankruptcy or a proposal in all of BC, that's more than 10% of the total. So it's a pretty large number of folks. Um, So it gave us some really good insights about what people who are facing debt in BC, what their life is like right now. Yeah. And I think one of the other best um, sort of offshoots from, from anyone listening to this is that you'll get the sense right away that if you're in one of these situations, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of other people who are in the exact same spot who then took action to figure out how to do it and um, as a result, you know, got to share their information with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really great. Yeah. And, and, you know, we change the focus every once in a while, you know, every, every year sometimes a bit of a different focus. So in the past, we've talked about payday loan usage in BC. We've talked about the need for financial literacy, uh, about student finances. You know, this year we focused a lot on, you know, what advice would you give to others? You know, how would you help? Help someone in a tough situation. What would you tell them to do either differently or or to start doing? Um, so if you see the report, it's just you know just riddled with great quotes from people all around um, saying you know here's what I was facing, here's what I did, here's my encouragement for the future. So there's a lot of that upbeat um, type of wording in, in the report as well. Anything else you want to add in terms of the sort of the additional findings that you that that came out as a result of the survey? Yeah, you know we also wanted to, to look into uh, what were the income sources of people who are having trouble with their debt. What's their housing situation? What's their credit rating? Um, And then also, what caused people to delay from seeking help? So, you know, our hypothesis is that people suffer alone and in silence for way too long. We want that to change. Uh, This year, it told us, well, we've still got a lot more work to do on that. Yeah, I think it'll be surprising as we start to go through some of the information. uh, Exactly that. Their their income levels, how they were living, credit, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. You'll go, oh, that's surprising. Oh, that's surprising. Because it was for me when I went through it. I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Men versus women. Mm-hmm. Those numbers are really interesting. Age group, also super interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get started. Yeah. So in, in terms of the demographics, so who we actually surveyed this year, so as I said, it was over 1,300 people who mm-hmm. had filed either a bankruptcy or, or a proposal. And then about 63% of that total were proposals. About 34% was a personal bankruptcy. Now so, you got to feel good about that. Yeah. That, that's almost exactly what we see coming through our doors. It's pretty close to two thirds of people. They're not filing for bankruptcy anymore. They're filing for a consumer proposal. And that's a complete reversal from about 10 years ago, where it was about a third proposal, two thirds bankruptcy. So the word is getting out there. There are a lot more. The proposals are a great option to help people avoid a bankruptcy. Okay. Uh, and then from a gender point of view, this did surprise me. It was about 56% female uh, with the balance male. So I'd always thought it was pretty evenly split, but it seems at least in this past year, it's been more female-driven than male-driven in BC. Any idea why? 
Had you, were you able to sort of make any deductions from that? You know, in some cases, there's a higher incidence of student loans, we've noticed ah, with females. So, sure. um, you know, generally females over 30, much more likely to have student loans than males, at least in our practice. So, okay. um, you know, with student loans, you have to wait seven years until you were last a student, and then you can come and get some debt help. So our hypothesis is it's just a lot more people now coming through with student loans, which tends to skew a little bit more females. So. And the other thing is you may want to look at university populations too, mm-hmm. uh, male versus female. That's right. Or people who identify as each. If there's more uh, women or female mm-hmm. oriented than male oriented too, that might come up. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, how about got... mar- marital status? Can we talk about that part Yeah, we, we looked at marital status. So, you know, the vast, ma- or not vast majority, but the highest proportion of individuals, just under 40%, about 37%, indicated they were married or in a common law relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was closely followed by those who were single. So about 34%. Okay. So you're both married, common law, single, uh, pretty significant proportion of folks. Um, and then in terms of those who were divorced, that was about 23% uh, of the population, uh, widowed about 4%, uh, and the balance, you know, just other living arrangements. But sure. for, the ma- for the most part, you know, either single or, or living in a committed relationship. So what about the actual age range of the participants? Did that surprise you at all? You know, a little bit. So the biggest thing that we noticed in this year, um, and definitely compared to previous surveys, was just the aging of debt. So finding that people are older when they come to see us. So in our 2012 study, we looked at, well, what's the percentage of people who are age 55 or older when they sit down with a trustee? At that point, it was about 26%, so just over one in four. Our 2016 study, it went from 26 to 36%, so now it's closer to one in three. In this study, it went to 39%. So, you know, just under 40% of individuals coming to see us age 55 or older. So a lot of those individuals, they don't have the ability to increase their income at the end of their working life. They get what the pension is and that's that. Sometimes they can't go out and get a second job. So it can be a really tough situation if you're dealing with debt at the end of your working life or well into retirement. And we're seeing that more and more. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about income and housing being highlighted in the study and what you what you found out of that? Yeah. Yeah, so this was really interesting to us. So, you know, a lot of times people say, well, a lot of this overextension, you know, bankruptcies and things, it must be caused by people just buying way too much house and not being able to afford the mortgage and, you know, getting turfed out and then having to go bankrupt after. I don't think I've ever seen that actually as a trustee in BC. I have almost nobody coming to see me because of mortgage overextension. And from our survey point of view, just 4.4% of respondents were homeowners at the time that they sought debt help. Hmm. So the vast majority of individuals, 79% were renting and then another 5% were sharing a rental unit. So, you know, that's about 85% of individuals are subject to the vagaries of the rental market within yes. the lower mainland, which can be incredibly difficult. Um, you know, if you've got a place that's at a good deal, you don't want to leave that because trying to get um, new living uh, spots right now, especially if you're a family, can be incredibly difficult to yeah. do so. So it's not a case that, you know, people are coming to see us because they're overextended on their mortgage. Um, it's quite the case that these are folks that unfortunately haven't been able to acquire any real estate um, and now they're stuck with, you know, rents going up every year and their income just can't keep pace. Right, exactly, exactly that. That's what I would think that that would be, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, what we do think is that, you know, as of now, it's 4% of respondents own a house. We think that's going to go up in the future because I've seen this again and again. Um, individuals who own real estate, you know, they might get into debt problems, but then every three, four, five years, they refinance their mortgage and they just pay off all their debts at that point. Mm-hmm. So instead of paying down the mortgage, 
mortgage, they end up owing more on the house, but at least it's not on credit cards anymore. Right. And then they've got the credit cards and this can go up again in the next few years. But what it means is when these individuals eventually sell the house, all the home equity lines of credit, all the mortgages need to get paid off. So they might be thinking they're going to have a bunch of equity at the end of the day, but if that's all been kind of sucked out over time just for consumption, it can be a really tough situation. So just having a home doesn't mean that you're going to be financially secure in Vancouver. Right. And with the fluctuating real estate market, as much as it has been, we've seen it, you know, huge highs Mm -hmm. and lows and then highs again and then changes in the tax structure or... um, you know, uh, penalties for people, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That changes people's, how they're able to buy and what they're able to buy as mm-hmm. well. Oh, yeah, time. for sure. All right. And, you know, one other point there, Elaine, you asked me yes. about employment. And, you yes. know, this this was very surprising as well. I think for um, individuals, if you just you know, think of bankruptcy at a headline level, you know, it's people completely down and out, down on their luck, you know, skid row type of thing. Mm-hmm. That's not what we found at all. No. So what we found um, is that more than 70% of the total survey respondents were working full-time, working part-time, or being self-employed. So this isn't a question of hard work. You know, hard work alone is not enough to get you out of debt. It's a case of people working really hard, 70% full-time, part-time self-employment, but they still had to file either a bankruptcy or a proposal because the debt was just too high for even hard work to get them out of. Excellent. All right, next piece of it then. The primary income source at the time that people came to you for help. Right. So we talked about that with the reg- the employment income, um, self-employment income. You know, about 15% was actually retirement pension income. So that was their primary source of income. But for the most part, it was the self-employment, um, full-time, part-time work. Okay. Now, in terms of the amount of debt, so, you know, what caused people to finally reach out and say that they needed help, you know, that range was a little bit higher than it would have thought. So the most common uh, range when people started to reach out for help was $25,000 to $50,000 worth of debt. And that's outside of your vehicle loan or your mortgage. So I would think for anybody listening, thinking about $25,000 of carrying credit card debt, and that's pretty significant. But the vast majority of folks that we surveyed, the most common um, answer was, yeah, I waited until it got to about twenty five dollars to 50000 before I reached out for help. Wow. And, and uh, I don't know anything about anything, but I would suggest that that's that's a little too long. Yeah, and that's that's the big challenge, and that's what a lot of the wisdom that came from other clients was saying. You know, I waited too long. You know, waited I, too long. I flailed about. I you know I just you know put my head in the sand. I didn't deal with the situation, and the debts just accumulated. Um, you know, we found about eleven point seven percent of people their debts were a hundred thousand dollars or more by the time wow. they came to see us. And again, it's not mortgages, not car loans. So imagine your credit cards, your lines of credit your student loans, you know, topping $100,000, you know, even those from 50 to 100,000, that was another 25% of individuals. So it's really high. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely, I think people let their debts accumulate to a level where there's just really nothing else they can do than come see a trustee. Whereas if they had acted a little bit more quickly, they wouldn't have been so stressed and perhaps, you know, they would have done a proposal instead of a bankruptcy in some of those situations. Now, is that the big, is that the big takeaway for you after looking at those numbers that people needed to take action sooner. Mm -hmm. And what about having money put aside? And I know that that's really hard for some people to even think about sort of that emergency fund, but Mm -hmm. I would have... I would think that that would have been helpful as well. You're absolutely right, Elaine, on that emergency fund, because as we dug into the causes of debt, you know, what really caused people to have to file either bankruptcy or proposal, you know, it was kind of the classic causes that you think about. Um, You know, it's job related, there's unemployment, a layoff, a reduction in pay, there's an illness, injury, or health problem, there's a marital breakdown, or so on and so forth. You know, the combination of those was over 40% of the survey respondents. And to your point, Elaine, if you had an emergency fund, 
a lot of those things, that's why you have an emergency fund. You have an emergency fund that if you're sick, you're going to be able to pay your fixed account fixed expenses. If you're getting divorced, you've got something to get you through. So the challenge, I think, is that we've got people operating with no safety net whatsoever. No savings, no emergency fund. You know, the emergency fund is the credit card at the end of the month, which is not an emergency fund. You need to have money saved that you can put aside to help you get through the tough situations that you don't have to necessarily reach out to a trustee right then. So is there some sort of, as we close out this segment, is there something that you can do easily or very definitively to create an emergency fund for yourself? Because I know that that's real pie in the sky for some Mm -hmm. people. They can't even wrap their head around that idea of having money put aside. Yeah, there's nothing easy about saving money, um, you know, other than you've just got to do it daily. So, you know, if you were to reverse engineer, you need three to six months of expenses. You want to have that in two years time. What does that work out to literally on a daily basis? And then just start to save that money, put it aside into a separate account. The other thing I want to add is that you can see the whole uh, consumer debt study on the website sands-trustee.com Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. You know, one thing that I learned, Blair, from doing this show with you, and, and it's because I didn't have one, uh, but the the intricacies and the complications that come with student loans and the paying back of those student loans. Uh, I can't, uh, it was shocking to me when you first started talking about it and how not only the size of the debt, certainly, but all, like I say, the implications of, of having one and then how to pay it back. And I'm so glad that we're going to talk about that in this segment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are some financial commentators that are saying, you know, student loan debt is the next big debt bubble. So, you know, in 2008, there were all these loans, you know, made to people with no income, no jobs, no assets. Those were the ninja loans that people thought, you know, they would never get paid back and there was a big cost to the economy. You know, some commentators have been saying, well, you know, every student loan is given to somebody with no income, no job and no assets. By definition, they're a student. Um, so it's a loan where, you know, potentially people can incur well in, in excess of their ability to pay the debt off in the future. Um, and it can be a loan that can really follow you around for you know, a significant period of time unless you take some actions to deal with it. And we know how un- uncertain the future can be at any given time. Uh, if there's going to be a job at the end of that education and your earning power, depending on, depending on when you're graduating, uh, you may or may not have something to go to. Um, so I think it's really important that we're covering this off. So can you talk about the different components of student debt, uh, that you guys, that your firm, Sands and Associate, and Associates ends up helping people with? Yeah, you know, there's two main um, categories I would separate um, people into for when they come to us for help with student loans. Uh, you know, there's people who come to us, you know, very early on in their studies, or maybe they've just graduated, or they might even be just about to start their studies, and they're trying to consider, you know, how do I set myself up for success with a student loan? So what are the best practices uh, to make sure I'm not going to overextend? Uh, and then a second category of folks who have already graduated, who are finding it tough to pay off what they've already incurred, and there are some solutions there. Now, starting with the first category in terms of how do you set yourself up for success, 
you know, the number one thing, and this is not a surprise to anyone who listens to the show, is to make a budget. So as you go forth in your career as a student, you really need to look at all the costs you're going to be incurring uh, and validate those against the income or the loans or the part-time income you might be able to generate. So, you know, factoring in your tuition, your books, rent if you're going to be living away from home, groceries and other costs of living. And then considering, if you look at that budget, how much of that can you earn back through a part-time summer job, internships or different things like that? one really big pitfall is if you look at that budget, you figure out what you're able to, you know, to afford to earn back and what you need for a loan. If you're granted more than what you need in a loan, don't be tempted to take the excess. Um, I've met with so many clients over the years who have said, you know, I qualify for $10,000 of student loans. I really only need the 5000 I took the extra money, you know, just to have it and because it was cheap financing. And they can't point to anywhere where that extra money went, but it all needs to get paid back with interest over time. So make sure that you don't take more than you actually need. Uh, A second best practice is to make sure you're tapping all the resources that are available to you. Um, So there are a large number of scholarships, of bursaries, of awards that go unclaimed every year at just about every post-secondary institution. Um, So I went to York University, I graduated in 2002, and I remember my last three years of school, every year I could find at least $500 of bursary no one had applied for. I'd put in an application, um, and lo and behold, I had about a pretty good success rate of getting at least a $500 bursary each year. So, you know, make sure you overturn all the stones, go to your student financial aid offices uh, and take the time to submit applications for even small awards. They can all add up. Uh, you know, a last yeah, factor really to think advice. about. Oh, thank you. Uh, a last factor to think about yeah. is to build up a, post, a post-grad plan. So to really understand, you know, what are the payment dates? What are the due dates? Um, if it's a government student loan, you've got six months after graduation before you need to start making payments. But be aware that the interest starts accumulating right away. If it's a private student loan, you might not have any grace period at all. Um, So really sit down and make that plan so that you know once you're out of school, when is the financial commitment going to start for you. Okay. And I would think uh, as you give this advice, you've said it a number of times, it's better to ask for help when the first signs start to show up versus waiting until you're in a deeper hole than, than what you can foresee at that point. Exactly, Elaine. And and that's a great segue to the second component of individuals that we help. So, you know, we try to help people planning so that they won't end up getting into, you know, a large uh, student debt by the end of it if it can be avoided. But if you've been sitting there, you've graduated, you're struggling with your student debt, there are certain options that you can consider. Um, You know, one option that people clearly aren't aware of when it comes to government debt, like a student loan, is to make a consumer proposal. And the way a consumer proposal works, like a student loan with like any other type of a debt, a credit card, income tax, or whatever, a consumer proposal is where you make an offer and you say, I can't afford to pay back 100 cents in the dollar of all of my obligations, but I can afford to pay back 30 cents in the dollar or 20 cents or 25 or something like that. All the interest is frozen at that point. All the costs of administration are included in what you can afford to pay back, whether it's the 30% or higher or lower than that. Um, but it basically gives you the ability to restructure for the loan to be something that you can afford, something that's going to help you solve the problem. With a consumer proposal, there's no additional borrowing, uh, and a consumer proposal has to be completed within five years. So if you're looking at, you know, the next 20 years before you'll be able to get out of debt, uh, a proposal is going to definitely shorten that type of a time frame. I would think, too, that, um, again, taking action uh, when this first starts showing up versus waiting. And you may not even think that a consumer proposal or going to see a licensed insolvency trustee is 
the next best step because we get so bombarded with all kinds of other information of other people to go see to help us with this. Uh, and yet the uh, licensed insolvency trustee is really the only one that can really handle a student debt loan. Exactly. So, you know, there's two main options that we can help with if it's a student loan. So one is the proposal, as we've mentioned, you know, the second is filing for bankruptcy. And both of these options we should talk about. There's a bit of a waiting period after you graduated school. We'll come to that in a second. But uh, if you were to file a, a a bankruptcy with a student loan, um, the student loan gets treated just the same as every other debt as long as it's been at least seven years since you were out of school. So if you have graduated very recently, you can still come and see a trustee, a proposal or a bankruptcy still might be a good option to you if you have a bunch of sorry, of private student loans, bank-issued student loans, or a bunch of other consumer debt. But if you file a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy and it has not yet been seven years since you were a student, what happens is during the term of that bankruptcy, bankruptcy or the proposal, you're fully protected. So if the proposal is going to be, you know, for three or four years, during that time, you can't be compelled to make any extra payments. You can't be sued. Nothing can happen to you. Nothing can be seized from you. But if the debt has not been seven years old when they start, when you started that proposal proceeding, it will survive the proceeding. So if someone went into bankruptcy and their student loan was 10000 their other debts were $40,000, they had $50,000 of debt. At the end of the bankruptcy, the $40,000 would be gone. But if that student loan was not yet seven years old, that $10,000 would still survive the bankruptcy. So an individual has to be crystal clear um, on how a student loan would get um, would get treated either in a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. But the broader public policy objective there is that when you go to school, you don't do it with the assumption that you're going to graduate and then the next day declare a bankruptcy or do a proposal on your student loans. The government wants you to make a good faith effort, try to earn income, um, and at least try it for five to seven years before you file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Now, can you explain and, and, and correct me, please, as I sort of bungle my way through this question, because there's a there's a point at which if you make a payment on a student loan, then then the the amount of time starts all over again. Am I right about that or how does that work? No, it's a great question, Elaine, and that's if it was a private debt with a statute of limitations, but a student loan is typically not a private debt and there is no statute of limitations. So it's not the case, you know, you can go silent on your student loans and then after a period of time, they'll go away. Um, they won't go away. The the time period that matters is just when you finished your course of study. So, you know, Got if you it. finished five years ago, that's the time that matters. It doesn't matter if you've made all the payments required in five years or none of the payments. It's just when did were you last a student? So that's a great question. I'm happy we're able to clarify. It's just when were you last a student is the time that matters. Okay. So if you're a student or about to be a graduated student or you're starting to look for work and things aren't looking particularly great, getting a free debt consultation with Blair or anyone from the Sands and Associates organization is such a good idea. They give you some great options for student and government debts as well as, of course, consumer debts and business debts. Get a hold of them through their 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.